Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, what does the office of the keys mean for the one holding the keys? That question grabbed hold of my thinking the moment I saw my name on the chapel schedule for this morning and would not let go. This was partly, no doubt, due to the fact that I was, at the time, just finishing up a study of John's Gospel with many of you, and partly because I wondered exactly how an Easter Gospel would sound on the 15th day of Lent. The gift in the office of the keys to the one in bondage to sin needs little illumination. The metallic clink and clank of the lock springing open and dropping to the floor ring in the sinner's ears like the sweetest bells of liberty. The removal of the cuffs, the swinging of the cell door, the proclamation of emancipation, this is gospel deep and wide. But what is the gift to the one holding the keys? That, perhaps, is the Lenten side of the question. The Johannine side began to take form as I realized again how strange these words of the risen Lord sound to the reader of John's Gospel. In a book of carefully interwoven themes, what scarlet thread connects these words to anything else in John 1.1 1, 1 through 20.21. This is the first and only place in the gospel where we encounter the familiar phrase, forgive sins. Unlike the peace which Jesus had earlier promised and now gives, and unlike the paraclete which Jesus had earlier promised and now gives, the gift of forgiving and retaining sins has no prior promise attached to it. Nor does any recipient, at least from my reading of the text, exclaim, yes, at last, we've been waiting for this. Now we can finally forgive and retain sins. The connection between this passage and the gospel as a whole is no more obvious than the connection between the catechism and the gospel, especially for the one holding the keys. Well, perhaps this is one of those exegetical doors that remains stuck tight as long as you push against it with your full weight, but when you step back, it slowly swings open of its own accord. I suggest that for a moment, we forget that we have read this as part of our catechism for this morning and think of it only as a passage from John. Forsaking then any attempt to force the text to mean what we know it must mean may allow the text to open itself up to us in a new way. In John's Gospel, 
the list of things that constitute sin is a rather short list. There is only one sin, and that is not to believe in Jesus, the one God has sent to and given for the world. The work of God is to believe in him whom God has sent. So to not do the work of God is to not believe. Sin is the opposite of faith. Sin is unbelief. Now that unbelief will manifest itself in legion ways. So the gospel can still speak of sins, plural, but the root is always one. Seen in this light, or as John would say, in the light, sin is not a trespass of a rule. It's not a slip or a misstep. It's not temporary insanity or losing one's temper. It is the visible manifestation of lack of faith in Jesus. I steal and I covet because I do not believe that the Father will give me what I ask in Jesus' name. I hate, I curse, and I kill because I do not believe that Jesus and his word will judge and will judge rightly and will judge in time. I am selfish and vindictive and greedy and afraid because I do not believe that Jesus and his Father truly love me. I am depressed because I do not believe I will see him again. I have no life in me because I refuse to believe that he alone is life. The loosing or remitting or forgiving of sins here will only make sense then when we connect it with faith. As Craig Kester has said, when the message of what God has done in Jesus brings faith, sins no longer define the situation. There is release. Now, one of the funniest, saddest mistakes in the history of English Bible printing is the so-called Sin on Bible, published in 1716. The smallest error a typesetter can make, the misplacement of just one piece of type, changed the entire message of the story, if not of the Bible, when the words of our Lord to the adulterous woman in John 8:11 appeared as, Go and sin on more. Sadder still, but not funny at all, is the perversion of forgiveness into this kind of license to sin. It's forgiveness as the wiping clean of the slate so that we can start all over again with new sins. 
It's the new game and another chance to foul five times. It's paying off the credit card so that we can feel free to go into debt again. When forgiveness is seen only as the taking away of something, it can never be more than the whitewashing of the tomb. But when forgiveness is seen in its true connection to the coming of faith and the strengthening of faith, then alone can there be a true releasing of a person from the control of sin, from sin as defining his or her life, from the crushing burden of sin's guilt. Then forgiveness is the experience of life abundant, of walking in the light, of being set free by the truth. Then forgiveness is abiding in him and knowing the Father and living forever. What about the retaining of sins? Well, that's simply the negative but necessary reinforcement of everything I've just been saying. If a person's sins are nothing more and nothing less than the manifestation in his life of that one sin of unbelief, any form of piecemeal absolution will be nothing more and nothing less than fatally deceptive. For instance, if I can conquer my pride with the help of your absolution, I may be nicer to be around, but I'm no closer to God. I may, in fact, be farther from him if the result is that I now trust in myself more than I did before. That kind of forgiveness is like giving a breath mint to a corpse. It doesn't solve his problem, and it makes everyone else think the mints don't work. Of course, this message hasn't really yet addressed its problem, and to that we must now return. Where is the gift in the gift of the office of the keys? Not to the one receiving forgiveness, but to the one holding the keys. Well, we must be reminded of at least two more things before we proceed. Some of you may be thinking already that the answer to the problem is simply that we don't really hold the keys. Now, the text is clear on the one hand that our Lord is not entrusting to his church the power to make forgiveness happen. The forgiving and the retaining of sins are still both done by God, as the passive verbs make clear. My fate does not depend, after all, on whether or not you have forgiven me, but whether or not God has forgiven me. Secondly, the text also makes clear that we are not given the power to make faith happen. We are still flesh, and so are our offspring. It is the Spirit who brings birth from above, who is the breath of the new creation. It is the Spirit who convicts and the Spirit who guides into all truth. If there is to be faith and forgiveness, it must be the Spirit who is at work. On the other hand, the text is equally clear that it is into the mouths and hearts of his people that Jesus breathes his Spirit, and it is into their hands that he places the keys. 
So what does this mean for us as forgivers rather than forgiven? Well, an old priest once told me and a group of classmates who were doing our field work at his hospital that God calls most of us into the ministry because that's the only way he can save us. A similar idea seems to be the answer to my question. Where is the gift in the gift of the keys? Well, our Lord conscripts us into the service of forgiving and retaining sins so that we might enjoy all his other good and perfect gifts as well. How better to keep us from coughing back up his spirit than by drawing us into the spirit's work of convicting and enlightening, of bringing the world to knowledge and to faith. How long could we last as a community animated by the spirit of truth without the confession and absolution that is slowly making us into honest men and women? And peace? What a fragile hold we have on peace. But imagine, no, it's, it's impossible. Peace cannot last for a moment where we're not only receiving forgiveness but reaching out with the word that brings faith and life to all. Imagine, and this might be possible, imagine an entire people of God who saw themselves only as the recipients of forgiveness. How would it be possible to remain in him who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world if we were not personally, immediately, actively, continually engaged in forgiving and retaining the sins of one another and of the world? In what possible way could we be his witnesses then? Brothers and sisters, we have enough trouble as it is understanding the love of the Father, the grace and truth of the Son, the testimony of the Spirit. How much harder it would be if we had only been left to view God from afar, to see him from the outside. Here is the gift. In drawing us into the very action of forgiveness, we are drawn into the very life of God. It is the love with which the Father loved the Son now in us. It is Jesus in us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.